You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. An international raid takes down the illicit Hansa market. Recovery from WannaCry and NotPetya continues its long slog. Banking malware is on the rise in the wild. Studies warn of power grid vulnerabilities. Devil's Ivy infests security cameras in the IoT. Digital Shadows offers a look at hackers' black markets and sees similarities to the drug trade. And congratulations are due to the newest fellow of the Royal Society. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 21st, 2017. International law enforcement enjoyed a big win yesterday as a joint operation by the Dutch National Police, Europol, and the U.S. FBI and DEA took down Hansa Market, the contraband market that succeeded recently dismantled Alphabay as the dark web's leading source of illicit drugs, weapons, and crimeware. The Dutch police took covert control of the site over a week ago. Servers were seized and arrests made in Germany, Lithuania, and the Netherlands. So bravo Bitdefender, which supplied information vital to the operation. Companies continue their recovery from both WannaCry and especially NotPetya. The latter attack in particular has had a long-term effect on operations and a material effect on revenue. Concerns about the eternal blue exploits involved in the attacks appear to have motivated closer attention to patching. A resurgence of Android banking trojans is being reported by Dr. Webb and other security firms. Google is now offering Android users of Google Mobile Services 11 and more recent versions PlayProtect, which is intended to enable them to screen potentially harmful apps. Banking threats are of course not confined to Android. Kaspersky Lab reports its discovery of NukeBot, a ready-to-attack version of TinyNuke. The malware infects bank sites with a view to stealing credentials. Trend Micro warns against a current malvertising campaign it's calling pro-media ads. It's distributing the Sundown Pirate Exploit Kit, which is a mashup of ransomware and an information stealer. It may be related to the Green Flash exploit, which appears ready for a reappearance in the United Arab Emirates. There are reports out this week from both GCHQ in the UK and the National Academies in the US. Both find their respective countries' energy sectors vulnerable to attack. GCHQ says the grid in the UK may already be compromised, and the National Academies say there's a lot of work to be done on securing the electrical grid in North America. The Devil's Ivory Internet of Things vulnerability, reported this week, occurs in the widely used open-source IoT code GSOAP, ViewPost's Chris Pearson emailed us some comments on Devil's Ivy. 
He points out that GSOAP is especially prevalent in physical security devices. Quote, when developers share similar foundational code bases, bake these into the software running their devices, and fail to address or miss vulnerabilities as part of a well-oiled software development lifecycle, the impacts can be broad. End quote. Among the companies whose products Pearson says are afflicted by Devil's Ivy are Bosch, Canon, Cisco, D-Link, Fortinet, Hitachi, Honeywell, Huawei, Mitsubishi, Netgear, Panasonic, Sharp, Siemens, Sony, and Toshiba. The President's executive order on cybersecurity reached some of its agency reporting deadlines this week. There's also some interest being expressed in Congress on adopting some additional safeguards agencies could put in place to help safeguard citizens in their interactions with them. Senator Wyden, a Democrat of Oregon, who's long been interested in cybersecurity, sent an open letter to the acting deputy undersecretary responsible for cybersecurity at the Department of Homeland Security, in which he urged DHS to take steps to ensure that hackers cannot send emails that impersonate federal agencies. Senator Wyden advocates general adoption of DMARC, that's the Domain-Based Message Authentication Reporting and Conformance Standard, we received emailed comments from Valamail's Alexander Garcia Tobar on impersonation. He said, quote, The FBI reports that impersonation attacks are rising in frequency and cost the U.S. billions each year. End quote. He thinks adopting DMARC standards is something not only federal agencies could do, but that businesses could increase the security of their emails and reduce impersonation attacks by doing the same. Whitfield Diffie may now add FRS to his name. On Friday, it was announced that the cryptology pioneer had been elected to the Royal Society, National Cryptologic Museum Foundation. Our congratulations on a well-deserved honor. Dr. Diffie joins the more than 8,200 fellows elected since the Society was founded in 1660. You may have heard of some of them. Charles Babbage, Daniel Bernoulli, Charles Darwin, Arthur Eddington, Albert Einstein. Well done, Dr. Diffie. Security company Digital Shadows has a study of the cybercrime black market. They are specifically interested in the carding markets and how they've evolved. Their research suggests interesting comparisons to drug markets with a complex structure designed to monetize the theft in several stages. There are data harvesters who intercept the pay card information, distributors who resell the card data, fraudsters who are typically low-end skids who run the highest personal risk, analogous to street dealers, and then various types used to monetize the take. Monetization can be done by dupes or by mules, fences, and others who move and sell fraudulently purchased goods. One interesting highlight, the criminal carding groups offer courses whose come-ons sound like the old draw-me invitations you used to see in matchbooks and comic books. Most of the courses, unsurprisingly, are in Russian, but Digital Shadows offers a translation of a representative example. Do you want to become a professional in the world of carding? WWH Club offers you a new profession, a new source of income, a completely different quality of life. It will change your view on personal finance. It will show you how to earn money in an interesting, intellectual, and amicable way and find progressive friends and community. That last sentence offers a sad insight into the behavioral economics of the carding world. Still, better written than the shadow broker stuff. Digital Shadows says the course costs you 45,000 rubles, which comes to about $745. There's an additional fee for course materials that will set you back 200 bucks. A decent investment for a criminal, 
As Digital Shadows points out, you might earn up to $12,000 a month, or 17 times the average Russian compensation. Plus, there are all those amicable and progressive friends. The training seems pitched mostly at prospective mules and fences. So hop to it, progressive community. It could be your ticket to joining the wealthy elite. Or maybe not. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to welcome to the CyberWire podcast, Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO of Dragos. Uh, Robert, welcome. By, by way of introduction, we want to start out, as we always do with our new partners. Tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Dragos. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so as far as myself, I uh, really focus on sort of the industrial uh, control system space. Uh, a lot of my background was starting out in the uh, U.S. Air Force and then over in the U.S. intelligence community, looking at and standing up a mission to identify nation states breaking into industrial control environments like uh, manufacturing sites, water facilities, electric power grids, et cetera. That was that was all fun and uh, maybe too popular, too too productive. Uh, it would have been a better mission maybe if we had turned out. We found that there was nobody attacking anywhere. Um, that wasn't the case. Uh, so my team and I jumped out and created Dragos. So Dragos is a uh, fellow Maryland-based uh, company. We are uh, a bunch of folks that focus on uh, industrial security. We've got our, our technology, and then we've also got instant response and intelligence teams trying to tackle this very specific and niche industrial problem. So let's dig into that a little bit. Tell me a little more about Dragos. What are the specific types of challenges that you all are hoping to address? So I really see two major challenges in the ICS or industrial control system security space. Challenge number one is we simply don't have enough people in this field. Estimates range between 500 and 1,000 ICS cybersecurity professionals worldwide. Um, I think it's probably closer to the 1,000 number, but that's still very, very trivial in terms of overall uh, skill sets. 
And uh, the second big issue is we don't really understand the ICS threat landscape. And this also, of course, leads to a little bit of hype when we see things like, uh, oh, my gosh, somebody got a phishing email. The power grid's going to come down. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> There's a little bit more nuance than that. Uh, and, and so sometimes over the years, we've seen IT best practices copy and pasted in ICS environments uh, inappropriately. So when, when we try to tackle the problem, uh, we've got our threat operations center who goes out and does instant response and like threat hunting and services in the field. And the real purpose of that is, can we see intrusions firsthand? And from those intrusions, can we you know, pass that to our intelligence team to generate real intelligence, not just indicators and stuff like that, but insight into the adversary landscape that, that I mentioned is fairly unknown. And then ultimately, can we drive that to our product in a way that we start scaling and automating best practices and response efforts and how we tackle these problems? Because at, at the end of the day, uh, I think civilian infrastructure should be off limits to adversaries and uh, we're only getting more and more aggressive adversaries. Yeah, it strikes me that uh, ICS is one of those areas where just about everyone can sort of wrap their hands around uh, what would happen if, you know, if if they get attacked, the lights are going to go out or the water's going to stop flowing or, or that dam is going to burst. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the the tricky area, right? This is a topic that is fundamentally important to everybody's life. We all are impacted in a major way by industrial control systems, whether we realize it or not. And it is easy to wrap your mind around, oh, my gosh, what are the power that goes out? But the nuance in how that would take place is often lost. And that's really where a lot of the expertise comes in and knowing what really can and can't happen uh, related to specific events. And in that sort of chasm of a lot of people being super interested, but also not a lot of people responding firsthand and seeing and having expertise on, on the nuance of it, in that, in that chasm between those two points, we often find a lot of hype. And so folks that uh, are well-intentioned but talk in the media or elsewhere about the potential and, and really miss that it's really not fear and gloom and doom. I mean, there's some scary scenarios, but not, not quite uh, you know, movie-level land yet. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, welcome to the show. We're happy to have you. We're looking forward to what you have to say. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With identity orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. My guests today are Leslie and John Francis. They are co-authors of the book Privacy, What Everyone Needs to Know. 
Leslie Francis is a distinguished professor of philosophy and distinguished Alfred C. Emery professor of law at the University of Utah, where she also serves as director of the Center for Law and Biomedical Sciences. John G. Francis is a professor of political science at the University of Utah. I think a lot about privacy that matters to people is choosing the terms on which you reveal yourself to others. I think that's a, that, that kind of is a theme that wanders through a lot of the privacy literature. And one of the problems is that people may not have the range of choices that they want. So, yeah, I need a cell phone. That comes with some risks. I would rather have it come with fewer risks. We all know that there are certain risks of data getting stolen. As we head towards these GDPR standards in Europe coming up next year, it strikes me that you know different cultures have different standards for privacy. And as we become more of a global community, how do you see that playing out? In Europe, there has been, as you know, a great deal of concern, particularly in the, about social media or search engines, that can reveal a great deal about people's records that make them accessible to a larger audience. And I think it is that there are, I mean, cultural variations. So that in the United States, the debate is often uh, over the right to know versus, say, the right to be forgotten. And Americans tend to go a bit more on the uh, right to know, on having access to information as about others that they would like to see. And the Europeans, I think, have been somewhat uh, much more constrained in, in that notion. Uh, and that's probably shaped to some extent by the fact that all the firms that gather the data and uh, transmit information tend to be giant American firms. So in a way, this has accelerated the debate in Europe, at least I would suggest, that you're not only dealing with uh, the right to know versus the right to be forgotten, you're dealing with the fact that the data might be shipped to another country, to some of that discussion. One other difference between Europe and the United States that we might mention is that the United States has been much more concerned about government gathering of information, whereas in Europe, there's a great deal more concern about the private sector and control of information. Some of that's ironic because some of the history of European privacy attitudes has actually been shaped by the legacy of fascism. And communism in Eastern Europe. Yeah. What about encryption? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating debate because it does actually highlight, uh, highlight the whole question of security questions as it did over the phone uh, uh, that Apple declined to uh, de-encrypt. And I think at the, at the same time, it's, it's also equally clear that you can address encryption. It's not that much of a total firewall, as people would say. But I, I think it's going to be forever a kind of one of the great challenges ahead, because we're now in an age of ever-growing hacking. And uh, encryption is one way to address that, but maybe not always the best. So I think, yes, we, the encryption is there. Yes, people will figure out how to break encryption. But I think that's part of the ever-going cat and mouse aspect of security on the net. Every, it changes, and who has the advantage seems to change on a regular basis. As we go forward, lo looking forward from this point in time, where do you think the discussion on privacy needs to go? I think it needs to go 
to whether in the United States we should have a more overarching single approach to privacy rather than what people call the sectoral approach that we now have. So one of the things that's very difficult for people to understand is that the protections for your educational records are different from the protections of your banking records, and they're different for the protections of your credit. It seems like it's all financial information, right? So why are the protections different if it's your bank than if it's a credit bureau or a credit reporting agency? The rules also vary depending on who has the data. So why should the protections for my health information be different if it's possessed by my doctor than if I store it in a secure website called a personal health record? And I think we've, we're going to have to look at the question of whether we should have a more general, overarching consumer privacy approach the way it exists in Europe. And, and one of the maybe I would just add one thing. Justice Breyer has a famous quote that if you overregulate, you underregulate. That is, you make if you make regulatory policy so complicated, people simply avoid implementing it. And in some senses, that has to be constantly a consideration in privacy uh, policy, because if it gets too complicated, people just go around it. And so I think probably more weight should be given to people being sensible, to kind of educating them about how you use information and the risks you employ and your willingness to, under, to entertain a risk. That's Leslie and John Francis. They are the co-authors of the book Privacy, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's from Oxford University Press. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.